Hello and good evening. This is Father Kelly working on day four of the pilgrimage, yet only recording day three, recording number three rather, because day one and two are together. But day four, it's actually not almost midnight this time, but it sure feels like it because I keep getting not eight hours of sleep, which, you know, when do I ever do that? Um, but I'm going to go to bed right after this. But it is objectively earlier than usual, so that's a good trend at least. Uh, hopefully I can keep that going. So this morning, we began with a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. Now this is sort of a funny thing, because you go to a certain side of the sea, and it was, well, different side than the last time, because it was windy this time, so they had the boats on the east side of the sea, not the west side, because the wind was coming out of the east, and it would have been a pain to kind of go into the wind. Anyways, these are funny boats, because they are random, normal, metal fishing boats that have been dressed up to look like wooden, old-school fishing boats, except they're like 60 or 70 feet long and diesel-powered, um, and with names like Moses and Zachariah and what was one of them? Queen of Sheba was one of them. It's a funny thing. You get on these boats, too, and this particular one, they began playing Amazing Grace. I think it's like a Nora Jones version of Amazing Grace, kind of softly in the background. And eventually I went and asked the, well, I asked the guide to ask the boat operator to, to turn that off because we didn't want Amazing Grace playing on the Sea of Galilee. We're a bunch of Catholic priests who are here to pray, not have a sentimental Protestant experience, which, if we're honest, most of the people who take this boat ride, or rather that's what they cater to. Uh, for example, last year when I, we did the same thing, um, one of the other boats, thankfully not ours, was playing the American National Anthem, blaring it across the Sea of Galilee and flying an American flag on a boat on the Sea of Galilee because Protestants like that kind of thing. But I'm pretty sure that has very little to do with, you know, Jesus and the apostles fishing on the sea. So I quietly asked him to turn that off, and it was a much better experience without having sentimental schmaltz in the background. Um, forgive, forgive me if you like that song, but it's not appropriate for the Sea of Galilee. It, it does not lend itself to uh, scripture. So anyways, we're out on the boat. Um, we didn't make a full crossing this time. They kind of went out and made a loop, uh, but that's okay. I mean, you know, fishermen would have gone out and made a loop. They wouldn't necessarily always just gone diagonally across to some other place. But we read uh, several of the accounts from the Gospels where uh, the apostles are out on the sea, either with, with Jesus and he falls asleep in the stern and he uh, calms the wind and the waves, or... Uh, they're out there on their own in the wind of the way, wind and the waves, and he comes walking across the sea towards them. Uh, either way, the Lord shows himself as both master of the wind and the waves and able to uh, comfort those who are in distress. And in this particular day, as I mentioned, it uh, it was rather windy, um, probably 20, 25 mile an hour winds, which you know, for an Oklahoman felt normal. Um, but, you know, it was certainly adds something to it when you are out on the water and it's a, it's a, it's a constant flag whipping kind of wind. Um, now these boats were big enough that it didn't affect the, you know, we weren't getting like spray up on us and, uh, the boat wasn't 
rocking back and forth in any kind of dramatic way. But I can imagine if you were in a much smaller wooden fishing rowboat, uh, it would make a big difference. Uh, there were slight white caps on the waves, but if you were in a boat that only had you know, two foot high sills on the side, you'd be getting wet. And it would have been uh, you know, a very difficult day, you know, as in fact, in one of the Gospels, the apostles are rowing against the wind and they're having a hard time. And so it would have been very much like that had we been in, a, in that kind of boat, not this sort of comically oversized fake wooden boat. Anyways, so it was still a, um, in a way, a peaceful experience to be out on the sea, to be looking across to the opposite shore uh, with the wind blowing, uh, you know, feel it in your face, um, but have this serene sense of um, taking in the scenery, taking in the experience of being on the Sea of Galilee and reflecting on uh, what that would have been like for the apostles to be out on days like this and to have the Lord uh, either with them or to join them. Uh, a sort of a comical side aspect of it was uh, that my cassock, which I've been wearing around here, uh, my cassock was, was whipping in the wind, and it rather reminded me of, you know, in Harry Potter when they're riding their brooms and uh, playing Quidditch in a rainstorm, and the and the, their robes are, are whipping in the wind behind the players, uh, which, you know, of course, the robes in Harry Potter uh, are pretty reminiscent of uh, priests' cassocks, just like, you know, graduation robes and all that sort of stuff. It comes from church attire. It's just been adopted for other uh, purposes. So, not that I was imagining myself playing Quidditch or something like that, uh, but it did kind of have that effect of, oh, yeah, that is something like that, because I honestly haven't often worn my cassock on a very windy day, but this certainly uh, was one. Eventually, kind of grabbed it over on the side so it quit blowing around, but for a, for a little while, it was uh, doing its own impression of a flag. So the boat came back into shore, and we got back on our bus and headed towards Nazareth. Uh, we went, um, I presume we were just going to the Church of the Annunciation like we did last year, but actually we made a stop first at a uh, little convent. Well, it may not be very little, but we made a stop at a convent of the Sisters of Nazareth. This is a community that um, apparently was invited to Nazareth uh, literally because of their name. I forget which uh, ruler at the time, uh, maybe it was one of the kings of France, I forget, um, said, hey, you're the sisters of Nazareth, you should go live in Nazareth. And so they did. And so they uh, had this property over Nazareth. Um, but a fantastic thing about this particular place uh, is that underneath it, they found, rather by accident, uh, the remains of a first century house, a fourth century Byzantine church, and an 11th century Crusader era church. This is something that they that they kind of knew was there from the beginning. Uh, when they had bought the property, uh, someone had told them that this contained the grave of a righteous man. And they didn't think too much of it, I suppose. Bought the property anyways and built their convent on top of it. And later discovered this uh, really seemingly great arch archaeological, architectural find underneath their building. That ends up being significant because it raises a big question mark about, well, whose house and possible grave is this? Because if it's described as the grave of a righteous man from the first century in the town of Nazareth, there's a few things that a Christian might think that that might be. You know, that lines up that it could be referring to the tomb of Joseph. Joseph 
the foster father of Jesus, which would be a rather important thing to have found. Now, Sister was very clear in the beginning that when they dug down and they found a tomb, they opened the tomb, nothing was in there. So they did not find the bones of Joseph or anybody at all. Well, they said they found a, they found the bones of a bishop in one of the higher level churches, um, but in the first century tomb that was labeled a righteous man. Well, no way, it wasn't labeled at all, but just colloquially it was referred to as the tomb of the righteous man. Uh, they didn't find anything, but there's still a possibility that that's that that's whose tomb it was, uh, because remember there was the there were two older churches above it, so the fourth century Byzantine church and the 11th century, I believe 11th century, Crusaders Church. So, if we know the Crusaders, they like to move things and keep things safe and take them other places. So, it's plausible, though there is not any kind of objective proof. There's no, like, you know, here lies Joseph written on the wall or anything. It's possible that this was the tomb of St. Joseph, and that in some earlier centuries, uh, someone took the bones of Joseph somewhere for safekeeping, and as tends to happen, the person who kept them safe didn't tell anybody, or the, the, the secret of that got lost. So who knows what or where they are, um, but uh, it is at least plausible, though again, Sister refused to say specifically that this was the home of the Holy Family or the tomb of St. Joseph. Could be some other righteous man. Either way, it is significant um, as a as an archaeological find to have this again first century house fourth century church 11th century church under the modern 20th century maybe 18th century I forget when they built it under this modern monastery uh, so it's worth investigating there might be other things found eventually uh, but it's not out of the realm of possibility at least that this was at least the former resting place of St. Joseph um, you know, we we trust to future ages that you know, they wouldn't have built a church over this place in the beginning if it weren't important, right? They didn't. The Byzantines didn't build churches over just any random first-century home they came across. There would have been lots of those. So why build over this particular one if it didn't have some particular special importance? So um, you know, there's not uh, a lot of evidence. They they've really kind of only just recently dug it up. Dug it up. You know, not like last year, but in archaeological timelines pretty recently. So maybe there's, maybe there'll be something more definitive in the future. Uh, who knows? But that was a very uh, fascinating place to go, um, even just sort of objectively for the neat neatness, the fascinating aspect of the layers of underground, you know, the main building, but then like 20 feet down below that, an older building, and then below that, an older building, then below that, an older building. You know, it's it's so cool to see that history literally piled up with the added bonus that it might be some very significant place. Next, we went to the Basilica of the Annunciation, just a few blocks away, which is very much affirmed to be a very significant place. It is built over the cave, uh, which was Mary's house when the angel appeared to her. So down on the bottom floor of the church, uh, you can look into, there's an altar inside now of the cave, uh, very certainly where Mary lived when the angel appeared to her. And uh, we got some special treats down there this particular time. Again, I was there last year, but uh, this time we had, a, we had a cardinal with us, and that gets you certain privileges apparently. So usually pilgrims are only allowed to pray in front of the gate 
that you know keeps us out of the cave because it's you know you don't want just thousands of people walking in there every day right um but because we had a cardinal with us and you know, no one pushed this to happen but they offered so of course we said yes uh, we were allowed to go into this little cave and pray just for you know a few seconds each person uh, so it was a great blessing to uh, go into that cave uh, spend a few just a few moments in prayer in front of the altar uh, literally praying in the place where the angel of Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared unto Mary and she conceived by the Holy Spirit um, then later we went and had mass at a nearby chapel uh, just again within 35 feet of the of the actual cave um, Cardinal again gave a very beautiful homily and then I was able to uh, go back just outside the gate at the time it wasn't open anymore and uh, offer my uh, all of the prayers that you all have requested to bring to the Holy Land so all of those all of my pilgrimage prayers today were offered uh, in front of the place of the Annunciation and obviously uh, a very sacred place for the history of Christianity the place where uh, the Holy Spirit came down upon Mary and she uh, conceived of Jesus Christ. From there, we went up the hill to a place known as Joseph's Workshop. Again, this one is pretty well established. It's got a Church of St. Joseph over it, and you can go down, um, not fully into uh, the workshop area, if you will, um, but uh, again, uh, you can get kind of down to one layer of history, uh, probably into the to the original part of an earlier church with the older church, with the newer church now built above it. Um, again, I don't think it says, uh, you know, St. Joseph's workshop written into one of the walls. Uh, that's not how you did things back then. But uh, it's again, the people back in the early centuries knew where things were and knew what was up. And so they wouldn't have, you know, built a church originally, or they wouldn't have remembered this place for no reason. They didn't just invent it later as some, a random place to call Joseph's workshop. It was remembered for a reason. I mean, Nazareth was, a, was an incredibly small town back in the day, so it wouldn't have been very hard to remember where the family of the Messiah did their stuff. It would have been easy to understand. A little side blessing of this trip this day was to run into some of the priests from Oklahoma, which I didn't expect. I think I had kind of a background knowledge that they were also here, uh, but it was a delight to coming out of the Church of the Nativity, or the Church of the Annunciation, rather, and see Father Zach Bozeman and Father Jim Goins uh, from Norman and Ponca City, and get to talk to them for a few minutes, and uh, just kind of cross paths. We were going different directions, so I didn't get to see him for very long, uh, but it was good to say hello to them and take a quick picture. Um, and then, in fact, at our next stop, Cana, as in the wedding of Cana, uh, we saw them there as well. Um, so, as I said, our next stop was the wedding at Cana. It was the church now built over the place where the wedding in Cana happened. Uh, again, you know, there could have been lots of places for weddings to have happened in the early centuries, obviously. But this particular place has been remembered on purpose. Uh, you, you don't build a church over a random place for no reason. So the early Christians knew what had happened here and they remembered it. And so, of course various eras of churches so you can go down into the basement basement and see uh, the original floor area and then levels above that and levels above that um we didn't being a being a pilgrimage of only priests we didn't have any uh marriages to revalidate or to re not validate to uh re-bless but there were certainly many couples there doing exactly that 
Um, so it's always a delight to see people rejoicing in their marriage vows and um, remaking their marriage promises. After that, we came back to the hotel for dinner, and um, it was a blessing to sit beside Hector Molina, one of the coordinators of this trip, and to pick his brain about uh, how pilgrimages work and how things like this get set up. Uh, no surprise, it's rather complicated, um, but I was trying to soak in some of that because I would like to lead pilgrimages in the future. Um, I don't know quite when, but um, I'm definitely stewing on ideas for how to make that happen, and so it's good to uh, soak up wisdom about the logistics of how to make how these sorts of things work because it is quite an undertaking to do, especially I'm thinking because the one that I want to do, if I were to do so, by the grace of God, would involve less busing and more walking. Um, you know, my first experience of a pilgrimage was doing the Camino, which is lots of walking. So um, while obviously buses expedite getting around large area of, of Israel, you couldn't walk everywhere. Um, I would like to do one that has less busing and therefore more walking than normal. But I don't know how that would work with the usual setup of bringing a tour guide with you who knows all the things like that and probably wouldn't want to walk as much as I would. Not sure. So that's something to uh, that I'm looking into. And please pray for me for that. And if, if a lot of walking around a foreign country sounds exciting to you, um, you know, keep in contact and maybe you can join me someday. And then after dinner, I had a quiet evening, uh, just doing some reading, doing some thinking, uh, trying to think of some future plans and remember some things I thought that thought of thought of months ago. Scoured my journals, couldn't find it unfortunately, but maybe it'll come back to me. Maybe maybe some grace of the holy land holy land will recall this lost memory and uh, come that get that back into mind in the next couple of days because it is something that's somewhat relevant to uh, where I am. And if I remember it and uh, dig that dig it that back up and able to act on it, I'll share that with you in a later. Uh, later recording. But for now, uh, know of my prayers, and hopefully you'll hear more from me on day five. God bless. Have a good evening.